And welcome to this week's edition of the Hammer Time Podcast. I am your humble host, Ethan Hammerman. Plenty to talk about this week, but first, why aren't you downloading the Hammer Time Podcast on iTunes? If you don't download it on iTunes, you definitely should. We bring you sports, society, and stuff almost each and every week. I'm very proud to say that we're now at three weeks in a row, which is pretty darn good. So I'm I'm totally fine with that. We we bring it to you as much as we possibly can given our busy schedules, but we we do our best. And this week we have another really great guest. I'm going to let him introduce himself because he has done so many things and is so well known that I'm sure he could talk about himself for hours, but I'm going to give him a a minute or so. Uh, we have Denny Carter aka CD Carter 13 from Twitter on with us today. Fantasy savant Writer extraordinaire. Denny, how are you doing today? No, not, not bad, Ethan. Thanks for the uh, intro. And, and you know uh, off, off the top here that I'm a, a, a huge narcissist, so it's, uh, I can talk about myself for hours. Um, I, uh, I do a few things. I run um, draftdayconsultants.com. Um, I write for a couple um, fantasy football websites. Uh, and I do the Living the Stream uh, fantasy football podcast with uh, my co-host JJ Zacharyson. With this is our four, fourth season. Uh, we just did our hundredth episode of Living the Stream, so um, it, it has a really uh, great following uh, that's grown over the years, and um, it's one of my favorite you know parts about uh, being in the industry, fantasy industry. And and that sounds absolutely fantastic. And JJ is a good guy. A lot of narcissists in the fantasy community. I think there's something about, do you think there's something about being in fantasy football that when you get something right, like these are people who just, they need to tell everyone about it when they get something right. Is that just a thing? Well, think about what what you're doing. I mean, you're, you're putting out uh, your best uh, guesses for what happens on a football field um, over the course of a season. And so when you're right, there's nothing better. And when you're wrong, it's, it is, it is devastating, but it takes a huge ego to, to go into it. Um, it, I'm not saying everybody has a a huge ego. I think that there are a lot of people who just say, you know, that this thing could happen, but it also might not happen. And I think that that's where you probably get the best analysis, but, but yeah, no, you, you are right about that. I think that anything for, public consumption uh, that involves guessing and projecting the future, you know, it requires some love of self. I think there are also some people who pretend that they have huge egos and don't actually have quite as huge egos as they, as they may make it seem. But, you know, it's the larger-in-life personality. And in any industry where you are projecting the future, as you said, whether it's stocks, whether it's the NFL draft, whether it's awards season, whether it's politics, which we're going to get to later in this podcast, uh, there's always definitely a sense of ego involved with everything. So we're going to start with the sports segment, and football is your main sport. Um, So I guess to start, what made you originally love sports in general, particularly football? You know, I, um, my, my dad was a sports nut for, you know, when I was growing up, uh, watched everything, um, played things recreationally. I, uh, couldn't give a damn about sports until I realized how the cool kids were playing sports on the playground. And I wanted to do that. You know, I wanted to be in that, in that group. So I started, you know, forcing myself to play flag football and, you know, 
wiffle ball, baseball, whatever else. And then, you know, I eventually grew to love those things, but it was totally uh, like a like a, uh, a ploy to boost my uh, my social life <laughs> at first. I love sports started by peer pressure, and now and now you're the takes master, and everyone wants to follow you around. That that's an interesting dynamic, a little switch of things as time has gone on. Um, but no, that's really cool. So, what sports did you play growing up? Um, well, I played pretty much everything. Um, I played well. I played tackle football for uh, two months. <laughs> <laughs> R.I.P. Debbie's tackle for, football for, career. For Sixty days, yeah. Uh, and then I realized, wow, this is this is um, awful. I I hate this a lot. Um, I don't I don't like uh, uh, doing the um, what do you call it the the, the crab walk. Um, uh, across 100 yards of uh, blazing hot turf uh, every day. This is this is terrible. And why would anyone do this? So, um, I quit. I quit tackle football. But I played um, a few sports in high school. Um, I played. I was obsessed with basketball. Over the over the top obsessed. Um, uh, but uh, had to stop playing uh, because my high school, uh, which is Montrose Christian School, where Kevin Durant uh, graduated from. Um, started recruiting players when I was a junior. Uh, and so uh, we were all, the, the team, the old team was invited to uh, to try out. You know, like the coaches were pretending, the new coaches, the new regime, were, were they were pretending that everybody had a fair shot. You know, like, hey, you know, just come out, see if you can make the team. I mean, meanwhile, like they're bringing in guys who were like, you know, six foot four and run like, run like deer. Um and, uh, so, so I'm, I'm, I try out and the first, uh, first practice, um, I, I really wanted to endear myself to the, to the new coaches. And I thought the best way to do that would be to, you know, get scrappy, you know, I mean, like dive for balls, uh, get under the basket, even though I was so much smaller than everybody, maybe take a charge. So I go to take a charge against this guy who's yeah, maybe Six four six five, um, incredible jumping ability. Oh, no. So he's coming down the court just like faster than anybody I've ever seen on the court at that time. I somehow get into position. I, I mean, I was in I was in the right spot, and this guy jumps over my head and dunks it on me. And I was like, "Well, I guess baseball it is." I could see that coming when you were getting into the story. <laughs> I was like, he's got, he's about to get dunked on in the worst possible way. He's about to oh, get so it was awful. I was like, okay, well, we'll try out for baseball. So I played baseball for my last two years. That works. Um, the the high school recruiting basketball players thing is totally a thing with Christian high schools. There's also a high school near me uh, when I was growing up called Trinity Catholic, and in the mid to late 2000s, they had just some athletes go to Duke and UConn, and these were guys who were coming in from, like, two hours away every day, pretty much just to play basketball. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, these, it's these not guys, technically legal, right? Well, yeah, I mean, eventually, uh, people did face some some sort of uh, criminal charge for, for, for doing what they did with the, with the players they the way they housed them or something was not, was not legal technically, but, uh, it was, it was basically the, the school 
uh, sold its soul for national recognition, and now it no longer exists. So <laughs> I guess I guess you get you get what you deserve in some cases. Karma is a bitch. Yeah. Um, so what made you like fantasy sports? Um, well, uh, talk about ego. I I got into fantasy football because you know I was I was you know head over heels for just regular football for so long that I thought, of course I can do fantasy football. I, I watch football. How, how can I be bad at this? Um, and I was, I was very bad. Believe it or not, Ethan, I was very bad <laughs> um, at first. And so being awful and finishing last in my first, in the first league I ever entered, I decided to um, dedicate enormous amounts of time to understanding the game aspect you know, not just the football aspect. And uh, so that just, that kind of never stopped. <laughs> and then eventually I, w- I was able to write for a few sites and I got some recognition. But yeah, that, that's that's how it started. I just thought that, oh, of course, I'm going to be good at this. That's how everything starts. <laughs> so growing up, you were in D.C., so were you a fan of, of Washington? Uh, no, um, I... I uh, Nothing has changed about me since I was a little kid in that I trolled people in this area, uh, even back then, uh, for for rooting for the home team. I didn't understand, as a kid, why we had to root for the home team. And I, I sound like I'm singing the, uh, the baseball song, the Take Me Out to the Ball Game song. But um, the uh, I didn't understand, like... Just because we were born in this area means we have to root for the local team. I don't understand that concept. So I rooted for the Dolphins. I was a huge Dolphins fan for 15 years. So you were through, was it Marino who just sort of won you over immediately? What made you a Absolutely. Dolphins fan? Yes. I mean, I I was like, I was like taken with Marino as soon as I saw him play when I was a kid. I guess this is like 1990. Yeah, like 1990. So he was he was still this is before the Achilles before he kind of broke down physically but uh, yeah I was I Marino was my you know um, idol uh, growing up and I lived and died with the Dolphins man I, I I can't even tell you the number of times I cried over Dolphins games just an enormous, just a ridiculous number of times it's funny because I was born in 1991 so my oh, <laughs> so I, t- I had to work that in there somehow but my Marino experience is at the very end of his career and I remember because I'm a Patriots fan I watched him play and I think he got hurt in a couple of games and like Damon Hjord came in and I remember Jay Fiedler the Jay Fiedler era mm-hmm. well for people who did not watch Jay Fiedler who would you compare Jay Fiedler to nowadays because he really wasn't he, he was like the ultimate mediocre quarterback that's a great question I, and I thought about this recently. I, I still say that Jay Fiedler is still the greatest post-Marino Dolphins quarterback. Oh, I think he's um, better than Tannehill for sure. He was not that bad. No, no, he was fine. Uh, you know who I, I would compare him to? Um, Rich Gannon, I think, is, is one guy. Maybe Gannon was a little better. But today's comp would be Ryan Fitzpatrick. And it makes sense because they're both Ivy Leaguers. Jay oh, yeah. I guess they are. But yeah, so I mean Fiedler did nothing special. Uh they rolled him out a lot. Um, 
you know, to the right and left, j- just to like make, just to like cut the field in half for him. And, uh, um, and, uh, he, he was, you know, he's pretty mobile. Uh, he would, he wouldn't, he would sell out on, you know, running the ball when, when he did take off. Um, I remember the game, the game right after, uh, 9-11 where, uh, he played against the Raiders when the Raiders were really good. Uh, that was a thing at, at one time. And, um, Fiedler dove and in, dove into the end zone, uh, to win the game, like at the buzzer. And it was, that, that was one of the most memorable football games I've ever, I've ever seen. You know, I'm thinking about the comp now and, and poor man's for sure, but he has a lot of Tony Romo in him or had a lot of Tony Romo. I, like, and the evolutionary chain of quarterbacks is probably one evolutionary stage below Tony Romo. You know what? I, I'm totally, but you're, are you talking about like, like young Romo or like now this whole decrepit Romo? I'm talking about Romo when he would, his, when, when Romo was at his best. Like, Fiedler okay. is not as good, but evolve up. Like, we're, we're, a lot of Pokemon stuff is going on. Use, a, use an evolutionary stone on Jay Fiedler, he turns into Tony Romo. I think I know what that means. That, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, yeah. and you're right. You're right. All right. Well, anyway, enough about Jay Fiedler, who also oh, is Jewish. Way, by the way, Jewish quarterback. Have, listen, I'm looking right now at a at my signed Jay Fiedler Miami Dolphins helmet that I have. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, Jay Fiedler, if you ever want to be on this podcast or on Living the Stream, we will we will make time for you. Uh, you are man, the I best. Would... You are the best Jewish quarterback I can remember. Second is Sage Rosenfels. You're number one. Number Sage. one in our hearts. Um, yeah. So, moving back a little bit to fantasy, what would you say are some of your signature fantasy opinions? What you are proudest of? Oh, man. Well, <laughs> I can tell you what I'm not proudest of. That, too. Uh, I did, if I could just start with uh, the David Wilson debacle of 20. 2012, oh, I want to say, or maybe 2013, whenever he was the starter for, for the, for the Giants. And it was that, I don't know if you remember, it was a Sunday night game, first week of the season. Um, and, uh, he fumbled, I think three times on three carries, right? Like it was, on, yeah. Boom, boom, and, boom. and so that, and that was it. That was like the end, the end of the season basically. Um, and, uh, I, but I went all in on him that year and that's, uh, that, that backfired pretty hard. Um, uh, I think my best call ever it was uh, Julius Thomas in, in um, his first year as a starter in in Denver. Whenever that was, um, was it was that twenty? Was that the year when Manning broke the record? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, so he like he emerged as a starter in August and like early August, and I was like, so you're telling me that there's a guy in a Peyton Manning offense who's going to run all the routes, you know, a tight end who's going to run all the routes and he's like being drafted in the late rounds, like the very late rounds of the fan. I was like, this guy, this guy could be the top, you know, scoring tight end in all of fantasy this year. He plays for Peyton Manning. He plays under Peyton Manning. So, um, that was, I was proud of that one. The thing with David Wilson, and I remember I was not as high on him coming out of Virginia tech as a lot of other people were. He was always so crazy explosive. He might be one of the most explosive running backs I've ever seen. Like, he he just had crazy juice. I believe he tried out for the Olympics this year and didn't make it, which is kind of a shame. But 
his vision was just so bad. And then also you pair that with the fumbling. It was just a bad combination. I know. You know what? I'll never forget in that Cowboys game, uh, Cowboys-Giants game on that Sunday night, the first play of the game, Eli dropped back, and they had a screen set up for, for Wilson. And if that had been completed, he had untold space in front of him. I, I, I mean, that, that was set up to be an 80-yard touchdown. And I think that his whole career – swings on that play. If he if he catches that and goes in for 80-yard touchdown on the opening play of the season, I think everything is different. But, of course, Eli crapped his pants and threw, threw a pick. Oh, Eli. That, similar to that Shane Vereen 84-yard swing play that the Patriots ran against uh, the Jets, I believe, when Vereen was a second-year player. Because he didn't play at all as a rookie, which was weird. But I remember that on that play, they literally had Shane Vereen mash up against Mike DeVito, the defensive end. And he just, like, <laughs> he, they threw a flat pass to him, and he just ran the rest of the way. It was it was a great play. Dion Lewis this that, year. Yeah. I'm ready for Dion Lewis to, to have a play like that this year. Um, so, going back to the happy, um, what are some of your happiest fantasy moments? Um... My my wife was nine months pregnant, uh, and I mean, like ready to ready to pop at any moment. And it was uh, week sixteen, so it was you know that's that's championship week for fantasy. And I was in two championship games that, that I I cared about a lot, including my family league with my brothers in law and uncles and friends. So. I, I really wanted that title. I had never won that league, and I was in the championship game. So, you know, she's starting to have some labor pains. I'm watching the Seahawks 49ers Sunday night game that, that determines everything in my game. And I'm like, oh, God, please hold on, baby. Please just stay in there <laughs> until, until this game's over. And then so I'm playing against Marshawn Lynch. And Lynch, you know, glides in for like, Two, two scores early in the game. And I was like, okay, well, I'm done. Great. I'm finished. And eventually, uh, not only did Lynch uh, stop producing in the second half, but um, the uh, baby held off just long enough for me to see the end and to win win that championship. Yeah, well, that, that, I also have very fond memories of a Seattle San Francisco San Francisco game was that the game where that was not the game where Russell Wilson threw six touchdown passes right? Oh no, that was in twenty thirteen when that happened. Because that's how I won my fantasy league that year. Russell Wilson threw six touchdown passes to win my fantasy league by three points in week Wait, sixteen he, he, against San Francisco. Against San Francisco. Oh my! I don't remember that. Wow. Yeah, that was it was crazy. Or might, might have thrown for four and ran for two. And I had Russell and I had Doug Baldwin, and I only won by three points because Justin Bethel blocked and returned a kick for a touchdown in the four o'clock game against St. Louis. That was wow. that was by far one of the most fun fantasy leagues ever. I had a great time there. Um, wow. So on the other side of the ledger, what's one of your most crushing fantasy losses? <sighs> so. I had a, um, this sounds funny, it sounds like I'm making this up, but I had a a Chinese news network come to my house uh, because they were doing a story on the growing popularity of daily fantasy sports, right? And I, I, I wrote the book 
um, you know, how to think like a DFS winner and all this. And, and so they, they came to my house and they have these cameras there, like two, two big cameras. They have all this stuff, the lighting. They're watching me watch Monday Night Football. Uh, it was the, uh, the game, the uh, Ravens-Lions game, Monday Night game, where Justin Tucker kicked six field goals. And I think four of them were beyond 50. So I'm watching. I need David Akers for Detroit to, to, to get one more field goal. I'm down by two. I just need him. I just need, I just need one more kick. And he lines up for like a 47-yarder late in the game. And these cameras are on me. And he basically shanks it. Uh, and I, I was, you know, I wanted to scream and throw myself out the window, but I had to just remain calm as these cameras were looking at me. <laughs> it's the most tilting experience of my life. Uh, that sounds absolutely awful. Like I remember uh, when one fantasy expert lost something. When did Davis Maddock punch through a wall? Oh, uh, I, I don't. I remember the story. I don't remember what happened. Yeah, I have also a. When well, this isn't fancy related, but one of my good friends, Lex, uh, who just got engaged, so congratulations to him. When we were watching the Packers Seahawks game with the immaculate incompletion, I don't even remember what that is called with the replacement refs, where uh, they caught the ball in the end zone on that crazy touchdown in 2012. He punched through a window when that play was called a touchdown. Um, that was bad. That was really, really bad. Was he okay? He was okay because he punched the wooden part, but it was still bad. Like, he punched through a pane. Oh, wow. So, uh... That's... that's yeah, people... Sports are a destructive, destructive habit. Yeah, I once broke my hand uh, uh, punching a fence during Corex softball, so... Wow. Intense Corex softball. I used to be out of my mind. I, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm old and, um, and, uh, don't care anymore. So, uh, I'm old and dead inside now, but when I was young, um, I really wanted to win all the time and we, we stunk. So I one time punched and then I felt this click in my hand and I was like, Oh God, what have I done? So just wrapping up sports, um, what were your thought? What are your thoughts on this season so far? And do you have any sleepers you're keeping an eye on that you can share with the listening audience? Very, you know, uh, remember? Okay, you know Bill Barnwell. Yes. Uh, he he wrote a thing last year. There are no sleepers. There's no such thing as a sleeper anymore. And it bothered a lot of the people in the fantasy community. Um, it bothered me a little bit, but. When I really think about, you know, that question, um, you know, do you have sleepers? I don't know if there are any sleepers. You know, I mean, everybody is written about today. You know, every single player you can imagine is, is somebody writes a piece saying this person can succeed if A, B, and C happen. And that's fine. I'm not, I'm not downplaying that, but it's just, that's, that's what happens. Now saying that I'm a long time. Jared Cook apologist, so I want to put his name out there as a guy who has played with some of the worst quarterbacks in in the NFL over the last four years, uh, who now plays with the best quarterback in the NFL. So that's an interesting point about sleepers, and I think you're right. I, I think the real place 
to get market inefficiencies now is in terms of where you pick them. Which, I mean, maybe we need to rethink, like, the sleeper paradigm. Like, I'm in an MFL 10 right now with Josh Norris from Roto World and a bunch of other people. Um, shout out to Josh Norris. And my first two picks, I had the 9 slot out of 12, which I, I hated that slot. I thought it was really bad. I don't know if in fantasy circles it's considered a bad slot or a good slot, but I didn't like it. Um, but my first two picks, I got Jamal Charles and Le'Veon Bell. And I would just sort of one of those things where it's like, man, Le'Veon Bell, if he wasn't missing the first four games, like, he would have been the number one pick in this draft pretty easily, I thought, or at least top three. So I guess that's one of those cases where maybe, I know I saw Matt Harden write about the all-suspension team and how it's not viable, but, you know, sprinkle some of those guys in there, especially in best ball. I think that it's a smart strategy, but. Yeah, no, and and you're right about if Bell was not suspended. I mean, this, this guy averaged, like, had a span last year where he was averaging 27 fantasy points a game. I mean, what, what is what, are you, what is that? That's that's impossible. He's he's so good. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Although it sounds like uh, the Steelers, the Steelers' new third wide receiver. I saw Evans, uh, Mike Clay talk about this yesterday from yeah. ESPN. Is is Eli Rogers, who was he literally is Harry Douglas. He's the same person. He's the guy replacing Artavis Bryant. Yeah, see, I mean, that, you know, this is another, like, in the discussion of everybody is talked about as a sleeper, there you go, that's another one. I mean, I actually liked him in Louisville, but he's Harry Douglas, he's mediocre, so we'll see what happens with him. I Uh, mean, Harry Douglas, who was elite when he was the Falcons' number one receiver, somehow. Yeah, he also searches his mentions, so uh, if you tweet Harry Douglas, uh, he will tweet you back, and he will probably not be happy. I got caught by Julian Edelman one time doing that. Edelman's great. I love Edelman. He's a good guy. I, I and and I mean he's not. I, I, I'm a little nervous about his longevity now because he's 30, and I think a lot of his game is predicated on speed and quickness. And he's he had that foot injury, which is a little bit concerning. But I, I don't know. I, I I I have him ranked below a lot of receivers this year, but I definitely still think like in the first seven rounds of your draft, uh, if he's if he's there in round. Six, I think you probably have to take him. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, I know it's, uh, say, P- in PPR is maybe uh, beside the point, but it's uh, he's, he's, a, he's a monster when that offense is clicking, sure. I think we need also, we'll do one more question about fantasy. PPR, I, I, I think it's a little bit outdated and a little silly because – I don't think it's fair that if you get a catch for one yard, that that gets you a point. I think there needs to be a better proportional system, what, or maybe something that's simply yards-based. Um, maybe something that, we, like, half PPR I think is better than just one PPR. What do you think about PPR and, and future scoring systems? I, I'm i all for a, a system that awards as many points as possible. Fair. I, I love point scoring and I think that PPR makes I think it adds an element uh, to the to the it adds something to the game element of fantasy football uh, and I and I'm all for that you know it doesn't reflect on field performance very often like you said I mean I think there were games a few years ago where Edelman would go for 70 yards but end up with 17 PPR points you know and and so that doesn't reflect, but you know it's a it's a game. 
So play, you know, play the play the game. If it's PPR, play the game. Value a guy higher if you think he's just going to catch a bunch of six yard passes. Um, higher than you would if if he was not getting if he was not being awarded um, for uh, you know for for the catch. So I um, I'm, I'm fine with it. I like it. One one final question: Eric Decker or Jarvis Landry? I mean, every time I every time I want to talk down about Jarvis Landry, I remember that it's like almost guaranteed that he's going to see 130 targets. So, um, just the opportunity is just tremendous there. I mean, I guess I go Decker. I mean, I don't. I I think Decker's a better fantasy player than a real life player. I think he's a little weak in big situations, but I I'd agree with you there. So we're going to go to society, and we're going to talk about politics. Last yeah. week we talked about the RNC. This week we're going to talk about, I guess, both the RNC and the DNC, because there were a lot of takes that were going out this week. Um, so you also tweet a lot about politics, which I know I appreciate, and I think a lot of other people appreciate too. Tweet a lot about capitalism. Um, which we're going to get into, but I guess to start, why don't you talk about how you form your political worldview and what is your political worldview? Well, I, I really try, uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm glad you don't hate my political tweets because I, I think, uh, I think a lot of people do. So I'm glad to hear that. Um, I try to base my political views on, on evidence. You know, I, I try to take an evidence-based approach to, um, to forming opinions. And, and even if, even if the evidence, uh, you know, from a study, from research, um, shows that my previous belief about a certain topic was off base, then I, I, then I adjust. And I, and I have done that with, with, with subjects before. Um, I just, I think that it's incredibly important to, uh, to not go by gut feel alone. Um, and I say this as a pretty emotional person when it comes to politics. I mean, I, 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 um, I get very mad <laughs> about, about things. So, um, I, but I really do try to inform my worldview with, with real reliable information and not just, you know, basically I'm not political hot takes. And that's the thing that I don't get a lot of the time. Like, if you look at the numbers of where this country was in 2008 and where this country is now, and I know it's not perfect for everyone, but the numbers, numbers don't lie a lot. And a lot of the metrics that the Republicans had called for being key metrics to watch when the 2008 election was happening, they've been met or exceeded since then. And the goalposts just got moved. And it's one of those things where I'm just, I don't know, it's like, it bo- it just bothers me a little bit because I-, I think that while no one's perfect, and I don't think that our political system is perfect, I personally think the two-party system is limiting, I don't think it's good for this country, which is why, while I, I personally am recommending people vote for the candidate I'm supporting, I-, I can't fault people voting third party that much because I think that... If we get too cynical, I don't think it's good for this country. So I'm fine with people voting. Like, like if people, I recommend people vote for Hillary Clinton. But if people 
don't want to and they want to vote for Gary Johnson or Jill Stein, like, good for you. You have ideals and I respect that. Um, that's pretty much my political opinion right, right. now. But sure. yeah, it's just one of those things where I I don't know. Like I, I feel like hot takery definitely has subsumed common sense. I mean, you look at Jeffrey Lord on CNN and this dude is just he's so stupid. <laughs> How does this guy have a job? He 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 I don't know, he just said he some really, really dumb things that are completely counterfactual, and even when people said facts, he, like, wouldn't listen to facts. Like, he said people, like, like, and first of all, like, I don't know, are you a history person at all, or American history? I mean, I, I wouldn't say, like, it's one of my passions, but I, uh, I do read some history books, yes. Like, so he's saying, you need to look at history, the Democrats are the party of the KKK. It's like uh-huh. he doesn't understand what happened in 1960. What happened with Strom Thurmond? Why the entire, that entire wing of the Democratic Party left the Democratic Party. Right. So it's just like one of those things where it's like, and this guy's getting paid. Yeah. And it's, and I agree. Like, I think we need to have more sober political analysis that's objective. And I think that will help us find more common ground because I, I mean, as people were saying, like the Democratic Convention, there were a lot of very Republican ideals that were communicated in that convention. And I don't think the parties are as divided as people seem to think they are on a lot of issues, but I think the way the issues are being framed and the need for debate is what's really driving people apart. Well, a huge, I think a huge part of the how corrosive and, uh, and hated the political culture has become is is due to the fact that, uh, you know, that corporate-driven, corporate-sponsored media has failed to, to say, to say no, no, that's incorrect. There are facts, and, and this is not a fact. And you can't just say that. You, 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 that, that these, these, this misinformation is so prevalent because um, corporate-driven media does nothing to slap it down. So it just exists. It's put out there and it exists. You remember death panels? Death panels was a thing because Sarah Palin put it out there and the media ate it up and they did not correct it. And it, these things must be corrected. But I think uh, that stem that goes back to um, uh, to to everybody uh, is now equally right and equally wrong about everything, and that's. Obviously, not the case. There are people who are very, very wrong in in politics. So you talked about money. Let's talk about your thoughts on capitalism. What are your thoughts about capitalism? <laughs> what are my thoughts? Uh, I just finished a, uh, a book called uh, "Capitalism: Global Genocide." So that's one, you know, just an insight. But uh, it's I I think watching the Democratic convention, I heard. A lot of talk about the the symptoms that we're facing, but we never ever mention the co- the cause of our economic malaise, and that's what it is. Okay, I know our economy is better than it was eight years ago, but it's not great, and it's not even close to great, and it's also susceptible to another crash. So we never discuss what is at the center of this malaise, and that is capitalism, because. Capitalism will destroy everything and everybody in its path in order to grow. Okay, that that's that's a fact, and it must grow. It must grow, or it will die. So, 
as it as it grows, it destroys the environment. It destroys people's jobs. It destroys median income. It destroys people's health. Um, it cares for nothing but its own expansion. So, if you have a system that has no uh, um, limitations on that growth, um, then then what do you get? You get a world ruled um, by this brutal system that leaves behind workers in developed nations and is a, a, a factor in basically the genocide of people in um, the global south. And then also uh, you get these oligarchies and their only motivation is to is maintenance of money. And I mean, I think, I don't know what a better economic system would be because I do think that if you look at a purely, um, like on the other side of the ledger, I think that we've seen their issues there as well. But there does, like that is why the taxation system is in place because there needs to be some sort of check and balance on people who make a lot of money. And I mean, I've, I've met with people who deal with this on a daily basis and a lot of people who I know who are in a higher income bracket, like they're totally fine paying taxes. That's, that's other than if you're like morally corrupt, like they're totally fine with paying their fair share. Like they get it. They know that that's how the world works. Uh, But it's just like, I don't know. I, well, I, I, I would say, uh, you know, we we still today, after all this time, we look at the the era from the end of World War II to about 1970. We look at that as the norm, right? The economic norm that we need to get back to that. Okay, when when you know the middle class was was really for the most part thriving, um, when uh, tax rates were very high on um, on the top uh, earners. That was that was a blip. Okay, uh, e- economic inequality was skyrocketing before World War II. The war destroyed wealth uh, with ninety percent tax rates on the one percent, um, on huge uh, corporate taxes. Uh, wealth was destroyed and 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 then redistributed to the middle class. And what do you have? You have a, an entire generation who is able to uh, uh, to thrive working. Um, you know jobs that didn't require college education. And so we can, we can never get back to that unless we, uh, we make enormous, enormous changes, uh, in how we view and how we view capitalism. Uh, and the fact that we can't name it, we can't name it as the problem, uh, is, is means that we can never address it. We can never address it. We can only talk about its symptoms, but we can never talk about the cause of what's, of what's wrong. I mean, I think that part of the reason why we it's hard to name it as the problem is because it is so contingent to the American dream. Yes. So I would ask you then, if we were to name capitalism as a problem, how, how can we reframe the American dream to be something a little bit more um, aware of that? Right. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, you're right. Capitalism is, is seen as, as, a, as a natural uh, thing like a thing of nature, right? Uh, in, in America, like of course, of course, we're a capitalist nation. That is the only system that there could ever be, uh, which is which is you know that's horseshit. I mean that that's that's a ridiculous notion. Uh, capitalism is incredibly unnatural. Uh, um, 
there, there have been lots of studies showing that people of all uh, faiths and ages and backgrounds, they value fairness. Um, and, and our system today and over the past 50 years or so has, has not been fair. Uh, not in any sense of, of the word. And, um, you know, you can see the repercussions of that. But, yeah, so to reframe the American dream, you could say, you could you could point to the World War II generation, okay, they're called the greatest generation uh, uh, by a lot of people. And you can say they didn't do that on their own. That was huge, monstrous government intervention. You, well, you wouldn't use the word monstrous, but you would say, uh, that, was, that, that was a lot of government intervention that made that generation's happiness possible. And I think that you can make some progress in that way. Great. So moving to what we saw at the RNC and the DNC, um, how much of the convention did you watch before we start? I watched a ton of it. So what were a couple of the speeches that really – that? I don't want to say moved you, but jumped out to you as, as being very meaningful. I mean, I really like the rhetoric that Cory Booker used. Um, he, it was, it was Obama esque, um, in its inspirational, uh, qualities. And, you know, he really did, he really checked all the boxes in trying to get people, pumped up about voting for Hillary Clinton. And, and I think that he did a good job with that. Now, Cory Booker as a politician is yeah. very, very pro capital. He is pro charter school. He's pro for-profit college. So he is your, your standard democratic, you know, technocrat. Um, and so the, his words, I think were actually were pretty hollow, um, in how he actually operates. But, I did like his speech. So which politicians do speak to your beliefs the most? I mean, I, I don't think I'll ever get a chance to vote for someone as closely aligned to my belief system as Bernie Sanders. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, go on. So what do you, what do you think about the entire Bernie Sanders initiative from, from where it started and how it ended? And then also, do you think it, made the impact that you wanted to see? No, it, did, it, it didn't make the impact. I mean, uh, Hillary Clinton gave lip service uh, to, to Bernie and his platform um, during her speech, and that was nice. But of course she won't follow it. I mean, that's, that's a, I think that notion is just laughable. Um, she is a, um, you know, she is a, a committed uh, capitalist through and through, and um, there's just no way that she's going to um, do anything uh, that, that, that Bernie has, has talked about for the past year. Um, uh, what was your other question? I'm sorry. Uh, oh, no. I mean, I, I think, I, I think you pretty much answered it. Um, well, I, I, I would say first, if there's something that shouldn't be ignored here and maybe counter something I said is that polling, polling shows that people 30 and younger are very uh, high on socialism as a concept. Uh, 65% of people 30 and younger uh, support uh, socialist policies. That is, that is a, uh, an enormous difference uh, from even 10 years ago. Okay. So 
um, this is not this is Bernie's message. I don't believe is going is going away. We're we're not going to just not see any more uh, of these sort of candidates running uh, running for the Democratic ticket. I think that for, first of all, just to play devil's advocate a little bit, I think that throughout history you'll always see that younger people tend to value more spreading of things out. Um, so I, I think that while definitely this resonates with a lot of people, it's de- it has a lot of historical precedence. At the same time, though, I know that I'm I was very upset that the Democratic Party could not find a better candidate for President Hillary Clinton, other other than Bernie. And I mean, I don't love Bernie. I think I, I voted for Bernie in the primary just because I think that he's the kind of politician I want to see more of. Because I think he has a lot of really strong ideals, and I, and first of all, like, like at the end of the day, no matter whatever we talk about capitalism, socialism, like full blown socialism is not coming to America. That's not a, that's not practical. I mean, there might be concepts that can make life easier for other people, but like, look, at its core, America is still going to be fairly um, similar. But we can always make it more sympathetic to those who need help. And I think Bernie did a good job of conveying that message. I'm yeah. I was just going to say, you, the, the, I think that, that you're right on that point uh, with, you know, so socialism is not going to sweep over the United States of America anytime soon, but that's what has to be. You have to push, you have to push for something way beyond what you think you can get. So you can get concessions, you know, yeah. I mean, the, the right has showed us that, time and time and time again that you push for everything and you get you get something you get a little something here a little something there so uh there you know the the idea you know to push for full socialism on every level of society is not going to take hold but that concept gaining steam and i think it could gain gain steam in in the future as as um as this generation as, as millennials grow up uh, could um, you know? Could could really draw concessions from the right? I think that's a really good point. I mean, that's negotiating one hundred and one. You ask for the moon, and you know, if you don't get the moon, you can still probably get some stars or something like that. So, yeah. I think I think that makes a lot of sense. The one politician who I I love, and I think she is one who is going to come out of this mostly unscathed from that entire younger demographic. Keep an eye on Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii. And I, I tweeted about her. She was one of the people who um, motioned for the Bernie vote at the DNC. Uh, and she has an incredible resume. She really? was a war veteran. She is from Hawaii. She has She's really strong on a lot of key, key issues. I think that she's the kind of candidate who I want to see run in 2024. And I mean, in 2004, you had that feeling about Obama after you saw him speak that like people wanted him to run. I think Tulsi Gabbard might be the next one, but hopefully we don't have to worry about that for eight years. No, that, that's interesting. But keep an I, eye I, on I, her. She's yeah, good. Uh, I, I will. Uh, getting back to Bernie real quick. All Bernie is, is a, he's a New Deal Democrat. He is what Democrats used to be uh, 40, 50 years ago. Um you know the the Republican Party rejected the New Deal uh, when Reagan uh, uh, came to the forefront. 
35 years ago. Um, and the Democrats rejected the New Deal when Bill Clinton was elected in 1992. So, um, you know, all he is, is is a New Deal Democrat. He's not like the things he's pushing for are not that radical. I, I agree with you. I It's funny, though, because like when I talked to my parents, my parents did not like Bernie Sanders. Um, they, they thought that he was very. And, and I don't know, it's it's like this weird paradigm. And maybe, I feel like in some ways Hillary gets a lot of guff because of who her husband is. But also, I think it helped her with some of like the older, more traditional Democrats. Because her husband did so much good for the economy, even though he, he was kind of a scumbag. Um, I don't know, it's like, it's going to be an interesting election. I still think as long as Hillary doesn't do anything really stupid. I think once Michelle Obama spoke on Monday... Um, the, the, the worm turned and I'm going to, I'm going to miss Michelle Obama. I mean, we might not miss her forever. I could see her running for something. I could see her being a Supreme court justice, but that's just Oh me. man, please. Please. Great. That would be incredible. Oh man, wouldn't it be, uh, how cool would it be if Obama left office and then was nominated to the Supreme court? Oh my God. Happened with I, would, Taft. I would die. And, and, and it happened with Taft and I could see him, I could see him doing it. I don't know if he got confirmed unless they they had the majority, but it wouldn't oh shock me. I would die. I would seriously. Can you imagine him strutting back into the Senate <laughs> and being like, "I'm bad guys." <laughs> no, the best one would be if he was the one to replace Scalia after that's they've been. That's what I mean. Yeah. After they've been obstructing this entire time. Oh no! no listen, Mer- Merrick Garland is not going to be the the nominee when if and when Hillary wins the election. No, it's going to be somebody. No, it's not going to be Merrick Garland. That's not going to happen. It's got the Obama. I'm telling you. That would be that would be incredible. But we'll we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Uh, one more question on side, and then we'll quickly move to stuff. Um, and I think we sort of touched on it, but like, this isn't really a question. More, it's like a, a plea. People need to vote in their local elections if we want to make change happen. I think that that's one of the things that is super super important. Uh, have you like? Do you? talk with local politicians at all? Like what are some experiences you've had with local politicians and why is it important to vote locally? My first job at a college was working for the Gazette newspaper uh, in Prince George's County, Maryland. <clears throat> and I covered local uh, politics. I'm talking about city councils, town councils, county councils, and that stuff matters to people's everyday life. You know, I'm, I'm talking about stuff from when the trash gets taken out to where speed bumps are put in. I mean, these things sound uh, trivial, but they're not. They're not. And so you 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 must pay attention to who's being elected locally. In fact, I would tell the Bernie folks out there that instead of taking a top-down approach uh, and trying to install, you know, a, a social socialist Democrat at the top, do it from the bottom. Do it from the, the the right wing has been incredibly successful in starting at the school board level, at the county council level, moving up to the state legislature level where they dominate state legislatures. Okay, and and making their views mainstream. These previously unthinkably radical radical views are now mainstream because of that approach. And so you build from the bottom up. That's the only way to go. I totally agree. So I think if you're People should run for office. Like, the the speaker before Obama, that woman, who was like, I was inspired to run for office in 74, run for office. Why not? 
I mean, if you think you can do a better job people in charge, I think you should definitely think about running, and at the very least, vote and support people who align with your views, regardless of part of your belief, because that's really important. Um, and there's corrupt people in both parties. Like, I worked in Rhode Island uh, on the Democratic side for a little while, and I did not like a lot of the people there who who won elections. Um, they, there's, a, there's a very old money feel in a lot of these places, and I think, um, I mean, I... I saw, I might have mentioned this in the podcast before, but I, there was an attorney general race in Rhode Island when I was up there. There were three primary candidates on the Democratic side, and um, one of them was, two of them were old money, and one of them was this really nice 30-ish guy who, uh, he, his volunteers did not look like the volunteers of the other two candidates. And it wasn't necessarily because of race, although that was definitely true in some cases. Uh, they, a couple of them were disabled. Um, a couple of them were uh, deformed. So it was a very different, and I don't know if that's the right term to use, but there's definitely, it was just a very different type of volunteer as opposed to the other um as opposed to the other two candidates and openly the volunteers, the other two candidates were mocking these volunteers as were the other two candidates at democratic functions. And it's like one of those things where party party doesn't matter as much. It's just electing good people. Yeah. And and you know what? Uh, We're going to see increasingly um, movements using the major parties as, as a host for their, yeah. you know, uh, for, for, for moving their message, uh, just like we've seen with Trump taking over the Republican Party and, you know, Bernie making a real a push with his message, uh, taking trying to take over a party that um, he was not part of until recently. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, I mean, the story is, is the story gets sadder from there. I'm not going to bring it up on the podcast. Uh, he lost the election and then something else happened, but. Anyway, let's move on to stuff, and from the horrors of real life, let's talk about horror movies, um, which I I threw out a take on Twitter a while ago, and you were like, now you are speaking my language about Friday the 13th too. So let's talk about, I guess, why, why you like that movie, and then other horror movies you like, and other ones that suck. Yes, yes. I know. I mean, the thing is, I rarely see anybody talk about like campy uh, 80s horror stuff. On Twitter, so it, when I see it, I'm drawn to it. And I can't, I can't not comment. Uh, I, I think you were telling um, uh, Mocker that that Friday Friday Part Two is a great summer movie, right? Summer camp movie, is that right? Yeah, I believe so. And you're right. You're absolutely right because it really does like focus on the, the like the camp element, not just the the feel of the movie, but the actual like camping element. Um, and I, uh, I'm a, just a, a, a huge fan of, of the franchise. I will admit that mostly it's, it's terrible, but, uh, it's really bad. But, uh, I, I also appreciate that the franchise doesn't take itself, uh, seriously, uh, like, like some, like some do. Like if you compare Halloween, um, the Halloween franchise to Friday the 13th, um, you have one Halloween that's dark and, and grim 
and very serious about itself and about its characters and about its themes. And then you have Friday the 13th, which is just like, like, hey, we're, we're here for some uh, uh, teenage partying and some slashing in the woods. Like that's 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 what we're doing this time around. So I I I just love the Friday uh, franchise. I can't remember what it's called, but I watched an entire research movie queer analysis of the shower scene in that movie. Uh-huh. Uh, there was actually this um, some guy was doing a fundraiser for it at a bar I go to a lot, so I I kickstarted it, and people read a lot in the movies. Like, it, it was pretty crazy to me, but uh, basically it was just talking about, like, all of these, like, homoerotic undertones in Friday the 13th. It was really interesting, actually, but a little, uh, little intense there's actually, in, in Friday, Friday 13th Part 2, uh, no, wait, it's Part 3, that there's, like, major uh, abortion commentary. Have you ever heard of this? I have not heard of this. So, the uh, the movie says that 13 people... Um, are killed in that in that uh, in that film, the, the third one. But when you go through the movie, you count only twelve. But the twist is is that one of the girls says that she's she just learned that day that she was pregnant. So they're they're counting the uh, the unborn one day old or maybe one week old fetus as as a uh, as a person. That's 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 commentary. I don't you know. Whether you like it or not, I mean, she's gonna be pregnant for. We don't know how long she was pregnant for, or, or maybe maybe several weeks. Whatever she she like her stomach was completely flat. She said, you know, basically said, but, you know, by the way, I just found out I'm pregnant. Um, and they but they count the uh, you know they count the fetus among the 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 kills. So it's like it goes along with the whole thing about you know Jason killing kids who uh, smoke pot and drink. <laughs> so, so. I mean, that isn't. You know what? That's actually really fascinating. People who are countercultural and 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 putting these things into their bodies, like the quote unquote bad kids. That's interesting. Maybe it's also a commentary on premarital sex. Oh, listen, uh, uh, Jason could have been controlled by Jerry Falwell. We we don't know. Well, Jerry Falwell Jr. said that Donald Trump has a special relationship with God. So, oh my oh, God. God! All right. Well. Um, so that's, that's one take that you have, and you have a couple of other, you're known for your takes, spelled T-A-E-K-S, um, and apparently you're known for your really bad takes, I haven't seen too many that are really bad, I think I saw your pizza take, which is really bad, um, that, that's the worst one I think I've seen from you, um, you actually, we, we do an outline for this show, and you wrote down two takes that you wanted to give. I actually agree with one of them, and it's your second take, um, which we can talk about in a second. But why don't you give the people at home a couple of bad takes? Okay. All right. So I'm going to start with the lighthearted one, uh, although I do mean it. I mean it completely. Uh, uh, food trucks are a huge gimmick, and the only reason anybody goes to a, uh, a food truck uh, is because uh, you, you stand in line at a truck with other people and instead of going to a restaurant. So it's just a huge a gimmicky thing. They overcharge uh, you. Uh, the food is garbage. Uh, you would not eat it if it was at a restaurant. And if you did, you would be disappointed. Um, uh, so no food, food trucks can, uh, you know, they, they would be, uh, they would be banned in my America. 
I mean, I completely disagree with this. <laughs> They're so convenient. I mean, it's it's much easier to, like, just walk out of whatever building you're working in and just go to the truck and order. I think the one thing you're right about is, like, no one... Food trucks should not operate during the winter. Because no one's going to actually stand up in line during the winter for, like, food that's overpriced. But, I mean, during the summer, like, I think food trucks are pretty clutch. It's so expensive. They are uh, really expensive, though. You're right. It's it's so... it's and But, and people, you know... All I hear from my friends, this food truck's great, and that food truck's fantastic. I never heard about a bad food truck. You know why? Because people are enamored with food trucks just in general, just as a gimmick. They're, you know, they, they have to be bad at some point, and I've never heard anybody admit that. Oh, well. I, yeah, I can't think of a bad food truck I've ever had, actually, now that I think about it. I'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to ponder that a little bit more. Send your best food trucks, your favorite food trucks, to both of us, and we'll try them. I, I mean, had I, a I had a food truck. Uh, um, what was it? Uh, oh, fish tacos. They were garbage. I wanted to throw them in the trash as soon as I bit into it. But there's a food truck at Rockaway Beach that I've had a couple of times down the past couple of weeks since it's summer, and it's really good. They have they make fries out of yuca, which is like this starchy. Um, it's like a potato substitute. It's real. They're so good. They taste like polenta. They might be actually polenta. I don't know, but they're really good. Anyway, what's your other bad take? Which I think is a good take, by the way. Okay, so yeah, I I don't know why. I just this this is something I wanted to say, and I guess this is just a form to say it. The entire for-profit college college industry needs to be abolished yesterday. It is not benefiting anybody but its shareholders. Uh, um, and, uh, and, you know, the, the people invested in it, uh, the people who run it, run these, run these, uh, for-profit colleges. Now they are, uh, under a lot more scrutiny these days and thank God for that. Um, but you know, in my view, education should be, uh, a public good, uh, available to everybody. Uh, and it should not be, uh, something driven by profit and corporate greed. So get, get those out of here. There's a really... Do you watch any Adult Swim infomercials? I have seen them, but not in a, in a while. There's an amazing one called For-Profit College University. And, you know, they're supposed to be, like, trippy. Like, they're supposed to be, like, the kind of thing they come on at four and you're not sure if it's real right away, and then you're like, no way this is real at the end of it. Um, they They did an amazing riff on online for-profit college... And uh, it's just so good. Basically, like, when the, the, everyone goes to class in, like, this virtual Second Life world, and the AdBots go to class with you, and they get free Panera, and one of the AdBots ends up taking over the system. It's really good. I, it, I think, you know what? I think I may have seen that. I, I used to cover, I co- briefly, I covered uh, the for-profit college industry as a reporter, so that's that's where my views come from that that is a, those are dirty dirty places that manipulate people emotionally uh to 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 steal their gi money uh to steal uh, you know their their student loans that from from the government uh and, and and for what for for a degree that you know means very very little in the long run so uh i think it's it's just it's just a stinking corpse of an industry that needs to be uh you know abolished and yet, I don't know if you know this, but the official university of minor league baseball is DeVry. Of course it is. 
which is like one of those things that, uh, well, that this part of the revolution that's coming that we'll both start along with all the <laughs> angry Bernie supporters. Um, hopefully they start at the lower level and work their way up. But anyway, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really good. Yes. Uh, thank you. I, I really, uh, I had to say, you know, not being limited to just football takes. Uh, I appreciate that a lot. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. That's what this space is here for, but that's going to do it for this week's edition of the hammer time pod. If you have any thoughts, any comments, feel free to tweet, share with your friends. Um, happy. Feel free to rate. I don't think this has any ratings in the App Store or a very limited amount of ratings, so feel free to rate it as well. Until then, we'll talk to you later.